welcome to this special episode of the Teaching and Learning Buzz, a monthly podcast of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Georgia Tech. We're your hosts, Carol and Rebecca. A transcript and show notes are available at ctl.gatech.edu slash tlbuzz. Today, we are talking about how to keep teaching remotely now that the University System of Georgia has made the decision to suspend in-person instruction for a prolonged period in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time of this recording, Georgia Tech is on spring break. Like other University System of Georgia universities, classes will be suspended until March 29, 2020. During the week of March 23rd, faculty are requested to test out remote teaching. Many of us are busy making our plans now. And just as a personal note, we're actually recording this podcast remotely um, at our own houses, some of us. I know I have a toddler who might start squealing at any moment. So apologies in advance for any background noise you might hear. I think that moment of levity will be welcome, Carol, so I hope she pops up at some point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So moving courses into a remote online environment is definitely a challenging task when they weren't designed to be online classes specifically. Best practices in the physical classroom may not translate directly into remote spaces. This challenge is compounded in labs, studio, service learning, and other hands-on type of courses. It's important to remember here that if you have never taught a course that was either a hybrid of face-to-face and online or a fully online course, no one expects you to be an expert or to do everything quote-unquote right when teaching remotely. But if we're flexible and adaptable together, we can help our students continue to learn and grow in this new environment. That's that is really right on, Rebecca. We're all in this together and doing our best. So we really want to explore today, what are the foundational considerations for moving your course into a remote learning environment? And joining us to talk about what to keep in mind as we make this rapid transition to remote teaching are Dr. David Joyner, Executive Director of Online Education and the OMSCS in the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. He teaches as part of the online master's program in computer science and is the recipient of the Center for Teaching and Learning's Excellence in Online Teaching Award. We're also joined by Dr. Vincent Spezzo, Online Teaching Program Manager at the Center for Teaching and Learning. Welcome, David and Vincent, to The Buzz. Thank you. All right, so our first question we want to get started with is... How should faculty get started as we make a rapid transition to online teaching? So I can jump in on that first, if that's okay. Sure, if you wouldn't mind saying your name real quick. This is David Joyner. Um, Whenever we're starting uh, developing a class from scratch to be online, I recommend teachers break things into three phases, um, design, delivery, and development. In this case, since we're doing this so rapidly, I think really only two of those apply, um, which are our development and our delivery uh, phases. Um, development is really about the material that you produce. It's about delivering your lecture material, delivering your content. And then delivery is much about assessment, grading, answering questions, things like that. The thing I love about teaching online is it lets you separate those two things and really focus on doing them each well. 
Now, as we're doing this so rapidly, it's not going to be exactly the same kind of experience where you have several weeks to prepare uh, good uh, front-loaded material. But I think you can still take the same kind of mindset of you have two focuses here. You have the focus on making sure you get your students the content that they need to succeed. And then you have your focus on assessing their mastery of that content. Separating those two out and tackling them as interconnected but distinct challenges, I think can really make the challenge a lot more tractable and make it easier to, uh, to get started, to know what you need to do first. Yeah, I'd like to... This is Vince. The only thing I'd add to that, that's uh, excellent suggestions, is just that it, given the current phase people are in, uh, especially that some of them may have never uh, utilized some of the basic systems that we're talking about right now. I'd say the three things that I would suggest to do first are, uh, first off, learn. Learn all the different pieces that are out there. There's just a, a ton of resources. But just pick a couple things that you know you're going to want to learn uh, and focus on those. Uh, test. Make sure things do work how you think they're going to work, how you imagine yourself using them. And then the final thing is talk to students. I think communication to students is going to be key uh, during these upcoming weeks. You know, we have a test week coming up. Asking students, you know, this is what I plan to use. Will this work for you? Um, you know, do you have any suggestions for tools out there that you're already native with? Uh, and then just it shows that, you know, we're all in this together. Reassure students that you're still there for them, even if it's going to be at a remote uh, site. That's great advice. Um, I guess one question that I have, you've started to talk a little bit about planning frameworks and thinking about delivery and assessment and those kinds of things. Um, but the majority of our faculty will have designed their classes for online and will certainly not be prepared for doing the second half of the semester completely online now. So what are some of the ways that they can decide which of their content or their activities or um, the course framework are most important to go online, knowing that we're all going to have to be flexible and we may or may not be able to cover everything that we had initially planned to cover in our courses. How can they make some of those decisions um, intentionally? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, I feel like you have to really dig deep down because uh, we're going to be losing a week of school uh, here ourselves. Um, so that's going to be a question about what matters most right now. I think you want to keep things simple. You want to look at what uh, outcomes you have built upon. You want to look at what are the most important pieces to my course uh, that I really want students to still have at the end of the semester. Um, and you know, we're uh, lucky enough here at Georgia Tech that we don't have that much longer of the semester to go. Uh, some institutions have a bit longer uh, where they have to think through a lot more of these, but I think if faculty really just look at what are the outcomes that we left off at, wrap those up, and think about what are the few that I really, really want them to have that remain, uh, that that's maybe a good place to start. Try to just do the major ones that are left. I think it'll depend a lot on where your class sits in the broader curriculum for your students. If you're teaching a class that is a prerequisite for another class, if you're teaching Calc 1 and they're going to take Calc 2 next semester, there are things you absolutely need to cover because they'll struggle further along. And that to me is always the first priority, is set them up for success at the next level. If on the other hand you're a senior level elective class and it's really about you know students being personally interested in the content, you have a little bit less of a, a burden on you um, to provide everything uh, you were going to provide, and especially assess everything you were supposed to uh, Excuse me. Especially assess everything you were going to assess. I think one real liberating thing you have online is you're broken free from the 
barriers of having a set aside lecture time uh, every week if you choose to do it this way. I, I highly recommend faculty take an asynchronous approach where possible of pre-filming lecture material, doing things like that, and then introducing live interaction later on. And part of the reason why I highly recommend that is it really does mean you don't have to pay as much attention to, I need to be ready to go exactly at 9.05 a.m. on Monday because students will be done at 9.55 a.m. on Monday, that's the end of the class, and anything I don't cover in that 15-minute window is gone forever. And so if my microphone takes 15 minutes to get working or if my computer freezes or anything like that, that time is not lost forever. What that means, though, is if you have content that makes most sense to present in a quick 10-minute setting, you can present it in a 10-minute setting. If you have a lecture you've always divided up into three class periods because it needed more time to could devote in one class period, you can do it in one long session. You can actually scope your material based on its natural structure. Now, it's a lot to think about on such a short notice. That's kind of one of the things we suggest people step back and rethink when they really start developing an online class from scratch. But the place where it can be beneficial here is you can focus on communicating the content you want to communicate without actually worrying too much about how much time you have left because students are going to keep this material after the semester is over. And if your primary responsibility is giving them the content that you want them to have, you can focus on that and then worry secondly about how you assess it and see if they actually master it. But for many of the senior level classes, our interest is really in making it available to students so they can do with it, uh, what they will. And you can really kind of provide the content you want to because you're not as tied down to a, a semester cadence, a class structure, a class time period as you've been in the past. David, you wrote a really um, interesting piece um, that you posted through LinkedIn where you were uh, talking about some of that. And we'll refer to that piece in the show notes. But I, you mentioned really quickly about recording your lectures um, to post asynchronously and then doing interactive activities. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about what you have in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So when I say recording uh, your material asynchronously, it's really about taking the material that if you were presenting in class would be, I'm standing in front and, and presenting it to you. It's a stage on a stage model, which is not an ideal model by any means, but it's one many of us are forced into if you have... 300 students in a class and things like that, um, which many of our classes still operate that way. If you have a highly interactive class where the entire class is discussion and things like that, that obviously wouldn't apply. But I find almost all classes have some element of core content that they're producing or presenting just in a, a more straightforward um, fashion. And the benefit of pre-recording that is just that you get to polish it a little bit. You get to retry things if you want to try them more than once. You can experiment with technology without the pressure of students watching you live. And you really get something that you're confident with before you ever show it to a student. So it's not about, you know, rehearsing a play where you know you can rehearse it until you're really confident in it but you don't know what's going to go wrong live it's more like producing a movie where you actually get to see your finished product before you give it to um to students and it's a great model the the drawback to it like you said is that it lacks the interactivity that often happens in class which depending on your class there may be more or less of if you're a class of 300 your interactivity may be a couple students occasionally in class raising their hand and asking a question or saying you know pause or work on this yourself and then someone raise your hand when you have the answer those are actually things you can still do in different ways. So BlueJeans, for example, which I know many of our Georgia Tech classes will be using, has a video sharing mechanism where the moderator can turn on a video and play it for all the students. And so you can pre-record your material and play it to students live during the class period. And you can still do the things like pause and say, oh, hey, someone just asked a good question in the chat. Now I'll answer that live. Or I just presented this problem on the board. Pause, work on it yourself you know, chat in the chat box if you're having trouble, things like that, and we'll play in five minutes kind of thing. So you can still have some interactivity, but the interactivity doesn't depend on you 
doing this kind of live presentation where you're you know working with unfamiliar technology and things like that so it's basically front load as much as you can just because it lets you be comfortable and confident in what you're giving students but then find ways to introduce interactivity later it doesn't have to be live either so in my classes for example we almost exclusively use uh, piazza the forum system because we actually find we don't really need that much more. I uh, let students watch things on their own time, but bring up discussion questions, bring up questions for clarification on their own that all students later can then also refer back to. And so if you're watching it three days later, it's not like you missed class and you're just watching the video. You get to go back and see what the actual discussion threads that have come up are, still participate in them. They're, they're not going anywhere. And so you get kind of this really interesting 24-7 classroom effect where everyone's watching at their own time, but they can then participate in a asynchronous but collaborative uh, environment. Now there is a learning curve there for students and you. Um, for my students at least, they've spent between a couple months and a couple years being online students, so they've learned how to do this. Uh, so I would recommend also setting some standards, setting some expectations for students, just saying these are the kind of things we'd like to see you ask. Um, I recommend, especially if you're going to do that kind of asynchronous thing, things like mega threads where you just say, here's a thread to ask all your questions about lecture one, topic three kind of thing. Just so students know Questions about that are expected. We're creating a dedicated space for them. You know that's the kind of thing we're looking for. So you're just kind of modeling uh, good behavior. If you have TAs, I actually recommend having them interact on a forum like that as if they're students, just to model good behavior as well. So students can see those are the kind of questions that are appreciated. They'll be answered quickly. You know, you know that you're not just shouting into the void if you're, you're in that kind of environment. So the, the overall point of all my babbling is to figure out the things that you can front load and do really cleanly, really well, that are really high stakes and then add the interactivity on top of that. Such great advice. Um, David, I want to ask you, because Vincent knows this, because I approached him to help me make some videos <laughs> from Steel Material, and they were painful. <laughs> Vincent can attest to that. Um, so what are maybe some tips that you have for faculty who maybe have never recorded themselves before, or you know aren't used to doing that kind of talking so that they are still compelling and engaged when their students are watching their videos. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that there's a few different parts of it. One is that um, if you can, do something kind of like what we're doing right now, which is get a, you know, if you have a particularly high-performing student or a TA or your spouse or your roommate, just another person who is willing to put the time in to either be on Blue Jean, something like that while you're recording, or just be sitting with you while you're recording, just to have someone to talk to. It just it, There's something about that live feedback of just having someone to interact with. Some of our most highly rated courses in our online master's program are actually presented by multiple people at once. I did one with my um, PhD advisor, Ashok Goyle, and then Charles Isbell and Michael Lippman have done a couple uh, on machine learning, where they're sitting there together, teaching the material together. One of them is a surrogate student, and so they'll ask the student-style questions, and then the a normal teacher role will answer those questions, and so you get this kind of dialogue going on doesn't need to be nearly that polished it's just there's something about having someone live there that forces you into a slightly more natural tone of talking a more natural cadence you don't feel like you're you know in a dark room talking to nobody uh, as you present um, at least to get started you don't really have, you might not have to do that the entire time just if you do that to get started and get kind of the feel for it you'll form good uh, good habits that will carry forward as you um, as you go along Another is, uh, we always hear the advice of, if you're teaching online, use short videos, uh, which is great pedagogically. Uh, it makes it a lot easier for students to take bite-sized little things. What I don't hear about very often, which I think is actually the bigger benefit, 
is it's much nicer for us to be able to sit down and say, I need to record two minutes of material on this one topic. And then I can go get coffee or I can go, you know, pet my cat, something like that. I can take a breather. So you're not putting the pressure on you of sit down and be on the ball perfect for 60 minutes straight the way you have on campus. You can do, you know, small videos, just a little check at a time. And then if you mess something up royally, you haven't really lost a lot of, you know, time. You just say, you know, I need to do that two minutes again kind of thing. Um, some of our faculty, myself mostly, um, take that to an extreme. I'll do individual sentences like three times and then edit them all out. I don't recommend doing that right now because you're you need to do it a little bit faster than I usually do. But you have that freedom to say that I didn't really like what I just did. I'll, I'll do that part again, uh, kind of thing. Uh, and the other thing that I would highly recommend as far as that is enter your your recording session with a good script. Uh, we use script. We often ask for like almost a word for word script for our very highly polished online courses. You don't need to do anything like that, but just bullet points. Uh, when you're presenting live, when you're recording live, it's easy to forget things because you're kind of performing. For most of you, I think this is actually going to be easier than it is for us who very heavily work online because this is really what you have to do in person to make sure you don't leave something out uh, online. But it can kind of lull you into a false sense of security of, well, if I forget something, I can just go back and do it. But you'll end up wasting a lot of time uh, that way. So just having some kind of agenda, some kind of script for what you're going to cover uh, in a given setting is very helpful to just make sure you, you don't leave anything out. Vince, do you have any follow-ups for that? I uh, know, just what David said, except I would I would emphasize that, you know, nobody has to do these perfect. I don't think anybody's expecting perfection, at least not initially. I think getting something out there, getting your ideas gathered, as he suggested, with scripts is a great way to do it. Um, to add to the idea of the conversation, that is definitely one of the uh, better ways to do videos when you have multiple people talking. Uh, not only so that you know kind of the great cadences, but students actually enjoy watching two people have a conversation. And to that end, um, especially for our face-to-face -face courses transitioning, you probably have colleagues out there that are teaching a similar subject or maybe even the same subject, and you could pair up and do group videos. Have two people doing the same subject talk together if you can. Uh, you double your effort and you make uh, a little bit of fun. Now, don't do that physically in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> you probably still want to do uh, a little at distancing there, but that conversation between faculty, it's both a great way to introduce additional experts into your class, as well as um, kind of combat some of the social isolation and make quality videos that people enjoy watching. I think students get a kick out of that too. Yeah, I was thinking as well, one of David's earlier points, and um, if you are teaching a course that is maybe uh, a requirement or you know that there are multiple sections of, that checking in with the faculty who are also teaching that course more broadly might be important, or the, the people who, the faculty who are gonna be teaching calculus too, yeah. needing to make sure that you know, you're know you in line with kind of what that necessary content and activity really needs to be through the semester, rest of the semester. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. So another topic that we wanted to um, think about is inclusive teaching. How can faculty continue to be inclusive as we move to remote teaching? Can so I you... think, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, no. I was gonna say, I think uh, you're probably gonna ask the same thing. Like you want a little more definition of inclusivity. Yeah. Um, but I just wanna say, I think when you say that, uh, that's a loaded word that a lot of people think means, you know, uh, immediately your mind goes to accommodations, right? Thinking about different types of learners, um, thinking about accommodation needs, that sort of thing. But 
I think a lot of people are really good, and you know you still need to do that. Um, we're not free from uh, accommodation needs. Those students still have specialized needs that need to be addressed. But I would like to, you know, just address one particular kind of inclusion that I think might get lost in this mix, and that's um, the digital divide that we have. Uh, some of these students are, you know, they're used to being on campus where we have excellent technology resources for them available. And they're going to be asked to go do this remotely at their homes. And some places in rural Georgia simply do not have the bandwidth to engage in some of these synchronous technologies. So I think a lot of flexibility um, is going to be needed for some of these individuals uh, that might not traditionally have, you know, needed things in your classroom before. So I, I definitely advise people to think about digital inclusivity. That's why we recommend doing things like if you are going to do a synchronous session, record it. Put it on Kaltura later as something that they could, you know, download um, because it might take them a while to download it, but then they can still consume that material and they might not ever be able to be live with you, unfortunately. So I, d I definitely want to talk to that uh, point and remind people about this kind of uh, hidden and inclusive area. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that um, very many accommodations actually I find very interesting. I teach an online camp uh, an online class for on-campus students, and so I get a lot of students any longer accommodations. And very many of the, 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 the accommodations they have granted to them are actually somewhat automatic online. Things like a, a note taker is usually about capturing a live lecture that would not be captured in any other fashion. Our lectures are pre-recorded anyway, and so there already is a much higher bandwidth, higher quality thing than any kind of live note taker um, could ever, ever supply. I've seen accommodations like uh, su uh, slides supplied in advance. My videos are all available on day one. For y'all, it'll be ideally your videos are available as soon as you, you have them ready. And so there's a lot of things that actually, the, especially uh, teaching online, teaching asynchronously, carry with them some of the things we've had to manually accommodate uh, in the past as well. I also, I also agree with Vincent though about the digital divide is another place where some of these models around asynchronicity can be beneficial because I, I have um, a student this semester in South Africa and they've had a lot of internet troubles down there because apparently a big internet cable was cut because every semester it's something new. And so one of the, the ways around that is let videos download overnight as the video comes and goes, or as the connection comes and goes, the video download stops and starts. And then the next morning, they're all there. And so you can sit down and watch them you know, on your own. And so you have some things that really work around some of those constraints. Same kind of thing with uh, forums versus chat boxes. A forum is the kind of thing of if you lose internet or you have to share your computer in your household with four other people kind of thing, which I think is something that I've heard that many of us aren't considering is that we're now sending lots of kids home to the same household, but there's one computer that four college students are gonna have to share you know, amongst themselves. Um, they're not losing something by not being able to get on the computer at the exact right uh, time kind of thing. Uh, inclusivity, I think, also calls to mind, though, a kind of a different sense of it, but including students in general in the teaching process. One of the, the knocks on online education is that it's very much about transmission. It's just, here are my lecture materials, go learn it, good luck. Uh, and when it's done badly, that's exactly how it works. and that. It's not an unfair reputation it has because it's very easy to do it that way, but it doesn't end up working very well. I think a lot of inclusivity is also bringing student feedback back into the fold. I highly recommend regularly, proactively asking for feedback, ask for feedback specifically on how did this session work? How did this download work? How did this video work? And also just in general, how are things going? What could be better? What would you like to see other classes do kind of thing? Part of that is that it gets you good feedback. 
But honestly, a big part of it is to just tell students, I care about your voice, I care about your experience, I want to hear what you're saying. Even if you don't process, you know, use some of that advice, because either it's, you know, it's too techn uh, technologically difficult for you to use, or only a small number of students are experiencing a uh, particular kind of issue, it, it signals to them that they have a valuable voice in this transition, that we are in this together, not, this is how Dr. Joyner transitions class online, and I just have to deal with it. So it tells them that they, that we care about their experience. I was just going to, yeah. I had another um, question that came up as I was listening to you uh, both, because earlier, I think, David, you were talking about um, having discussion forums, and I was just wondering if it's ever come up for either one of you that when you're in a in a totally online environment, do discussions ever turn toxic? And what are some good ways to um, help students uh, be kinder to each other in those kinds of discussions? It's going to be that kind of podcast, huh? Uh, no, they definitely <laughs> do sometimes. And it's, it's been one of my most intriguing things to watch over my years teaching online is how that happens because online environments can take on very toxic feels. Uh, sometimes it happens less when you have a non-anonymous environment. I find that uh, the toxicity is usually uh, builds from people interacting without the threat of social repercussions. Um, and Piazza, at least, um, one of its interesting features is that students can post anonymously to each other. You can't disable that. They can always post anonymously to each other, but you can disable their ability to post anonymously to you, which is actually really great because it means they can ask questions without worrying about looking stupid to their classmates and things like that. Um, but they're still known to you, so they're not going to go, you know, posting a profanity-laden rant. Um, but there's still other things that uh, that happen. I think we, we actually see it in my program a lot more because we have a much older student body who are experienced professionals. And quite honestly, sometimes when they criticize things, they have every grounds to criticize it because they have professional experience in these areas. They're not your traditional uh, student who, you know, is... Uh, Kind of new to the area and might not know exactly why certain things are taught the way they are uh, and so it's always interesting to see that they have their you know criticisms can have merit but they can also take on a toxic feel the main thing i usually find in mind i don't know how general this is so if anyone tries this and it doesn't work and it backfires horribly i apologize but in my classes what i've usually found is that students are really good at self-policing uh, most of our students they're online a lot they interact online they use social media a lot for those of us who have more traditional, uh, traditionally aged audiences, they probably do it more than we do. And what I find usually is if I see a particularly toxic thread, before I say anything, oftentimes before I see it, but sometimes I'll see it and I'll let it sit for a little while just to see what happens, other students will chime in and defend the class and explain the rationale or explain why things have to be a certain way. And it puts us in this really nice position of being able to step in and be peacekeepers and say, there are definitely some merits in this critique, but I think there's some merits in the, the alternative. This discussion has run its course, and, we'll, and please include this feedback on our surveys kind of thing. Um, but it lets them really, it doesn't put you in the position of defending yourself because others are already defending you uh, for you. Generally, what I found is if you don't find anyone defending, it probably does mean there's some particular merit to, to whatever that conversation is happening. Um, and so it's worth taking into consideration. I think that's less of an issue with this very rapid uh, change because I think it's going to be a bit more more patience because I think students will understand that a lot of our decisions are not highly deliberate. They're, this is what I had to do because I had to do something this quickly. Um, but I think it is worth letting those things sit, which takes a lot of discipline. If you see a student really complaining, it takes a lot of discipline to just let it sit and see where it goes. Other students will chime in defending the class. Other students will agree with the student complaining. 
or it just won't go anywhere, which I think very often is a signal to, to some of those um, toxic conversations that they are on their own in that, uh, that hesitation. Now, this is all about criticisms of the course. They can take toxic feels in other places as well, which I still find very fascinating. Um, in one of my courses this semester, we had a, a debate where some particularly extreme political views were, uh, were raised. And so you saw this deliberative back and forth of people getting pretty, pretty animated and pretty critical of vastly other views. I, I think that's more about different schools of thought. I think as long as people are being respectful of individuals, um, then that's exactly what we're in college for, is to have those tough conversations, really debate the merits of ideas, as long as it's not getting personal about, well, you must be just be this kind of person. What does that say about you individually? Uh, but it is something to be prepared for, because it can take you by surprise if you're not ready for the fact that an online environment draws a unique audience of participators. No, it's, it's exactly as David said. I think um, the only thing you can really do to stem a little bit of it is to have some kind of rules for engagement. Have your uh, you know policy up there that's like, here's how to properly engage in discourse. Because uh, uh, we're not going to agree on everything. And in a class you know, where we're having face-to-face -face conversations, somebody might let something go uh, because it's, it's a moment in time. But online it sits there and some people will come back to it and go, yeah, I am going to reply to that. And just as David said, that actually is when we have the best conversations online. From classes I have taught, the worst conversations are honestly when everybody agrees. When everybody says the same thing, they're like, yeah, that's what I thought too. It's a boring conversation. Nobody learns anything. It's when they challenge themselves and they look at different points of view. But there is a thin line there that can get crossed where people start attacking each other rather than the ideas. So you have to be able to you know, put that out there and just remind students, okay, we need to remember we're criticizing ideas, not people. And that's a good way to keep those conversations where they should be and keep them uh, educational and become learning uh, kind of objects. Um, so that same regard, just as uh, David said, to you know, sometimes they will criticize the course, they'll criticize your decisions, and uh, those are opportunities for free feedback, honestly, for where you learn maybe where your communication wasn't quite clear or you hadn't thought through something. Um, and I don't know uh, if you know this is great advice or not, but you can check. Uh, Georgia Tech has a very popular Reddit for students, uh, and that's anonymous communication and threads right there if you want to see what something like this might look like. Uh, honestly, I don't find it too toxic. Most of the time it's very uh, jovial in nature, and students um, do call out things that happen at the school, but they're often things that need, that they feel strongly about, but not in a very toxic manner, as long as it isn't related to UGA or sports. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the subreddit is a good example also of just be, be aware also of sampling bias. Um, I've had to caution yes. certain professors before on, you're teaching a class of 500 people and one person is very vocal about one complaint, you're not gonna please 500 people. If only one person has that complaint, that's, you're probably doing just fine. And same kind of thing on Reddit. You're going to get the, the people who are most emphatically negative very often. And so what you're really interested in is what other people say in response to that criticism being raised in the first place. Because if people aren't joining in, joining in, it's probably not actually that big a deal. Right. But That's again, kind of a great connection to thinking about your CO scores too, right? I mean, if you kind of apply that model, it seems to be the one or two that, you know, say something mean that we remember when, the, you know, often the majority of students are, are perfectly happy with the education that they got in that course. 
Yeah, exactly. So um, as we were starting to uh, come to the end of our time together, and I was wondering if the two of you had any resources to suggest that faculty might find particularly helpful in making this transition to remote teaching. I would actually take a slightly contrarian view of that question. Okay. Um, and I say that just to say there are really good tools out there. There's really nice technologies and things like that. And now probably is not the time to learn them. Um, now is the time to keep things simple, keep things familiar and figure out how to do this online using as few new technologies and as many technologies as you already know as possible. If you need to go out for resources, there's I've been shocked at how many things have come out over the past uh, few days. And I'm, I've added my own and I plan to add some more of my own. But there's just so much noise out there around, you know, you can do this, you can do this. It can get intimidating in the other way. So I really recommend, first and foremost, think about how far you can go using only the things you already know how to do and then be very specific about things that you need to add to that puzzle to complete your vision. Like obviously most of us have not done screen recording um, for this kind of thing. Most of us have not delivered a lecture online. That is something you'll probably need to learn how to do. But don't add on top of that, um, I don't want to cherry pick specific examples, but proctoring is a good example. It's brought up a lot. Proctoring systems are fantastic tools for ensuring academic integrity uh, at a distance. And they're also really complicated and they introduce a lot of stress on students and learners, uh, students and uh, teachers alike. If you can avoid them, if you can reinvent your assignments as take home assignments, as things that have integrity more built into the structure of the assignment rather than just assured by the fact that you watched a student do it and so you know they did it by themselves do that because it's going to avoid a lot of stress of introducing those uh, those new tools. When you do find things you need to, to, um, to learn how to do, there's a, um, a spreadsheet that someone uh, out of DePaul has been pointing out, uh, putting together. I don't have the link to it, but I'm sure we can add the link in our resources. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Just, yeah, it's like 200 resources of that different colleges have put together for, for things, which is kind of where I get this feeling of it's overwhelming out there. There's so many things out there. Where do you even start? I recommend start by figuring out how little new you can learn how to do and still deliver your course uh, successfully. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think the key here is to use things that are familiar to you. Um, if you do have to learn new tools, if there's things that are missing from your toolbox, I would search for those tools that you can get the most leverage out of. So if you think about, you know, I haven't used you know anything, Canvas, our LMS, is a great resource because it's going to have a lot of these one-off tools that you're going to need in it already. So try not to try, you know, to put together a suite of 15 different things to use. Try to find those one-stop shops where everything is available. The other thing um, I would recommend uh, is, you know, to look for the tools that are supported. Not so much because, you know, that's what the university has, but because you're going to want that technology support for you and your students later on. So rather than have to put out fires, you know, you're already going to be so busy designing things and trying to get your content out there and communicate with students and help them through this time. You don't want to have to deal with technological issues or trying to, you know, field things with different vendors that aren't on campus. Let the people on campus give you that support because that's going to come a long way so you and your students can focus on what they need to focus on. Great. Definitely. Both of those ideas um, so important. And, you know, just here as a final thought, uh, what 
final piece of advice or just encouragement even uh, would you like to leave for faculty as they move to remote teaching? I would say the one thing, and I thought about this uh, quite a bit, that I really want faculty to come out of this with is it's really easy, you know, right now to be so deep in everything that you can't see the uh, end of the day. But I really hope people are able to reflect on this time and learn something from it. Not so much as the need to be prepared, but to learn from the experience. This is uh, throwing people in a lake and having them learn to swim type moment where you're going to come out stronger than ever and you're going to come out with new ideas and you're going to come out with all these new techniques that, you know, are going to vastly improve your pedagogy for years to come. And it doesn't seem like that at the moment. I know that's true. It seems like this is so overwhelming. But when we look back on this, I think a lot of instructors are going to say, you know, I really learned something. And I really hope that that is um, something you can look forward to when we uh, do get out of the tunnel. Yeah, and I completely agree. Um, I can't narrow it down to, to one piece of advice. I have three, but two that we've already said. One is exactly that of reflect on this experience. And I, I add on to that. Don't necessarily judge online education by this experience because this is not Absolutely. the setting in which it's set up to succeed. This is the setting in which it's set up to be the, the stopgap. Um, and so I, I have a fear that we're going to see a kind of a reaction against online education based on some things that go wrong over the next few weeks when they wouldn't have gone wrong if we just hadn't been kind of an emergency thing. Um, so that's my first thing. My second thing would be keep it simple. My third thing, though, is that um, for all the stress that this intru is introducing on us, it's introducing, I believe, more stress on students because for them it's also their tuition dollars and their grades and their GPA and their graduation and their future career prospects. And they have so much weighing on this. I think keeping that student-centric mindset uh, is very very important to remember that they're the ones who ultimately will probably be far more affected by this uh, than we are. Err on the side of generosity wherever possible. I'd rather risk giving a student an A who probably deserved a B than risk giving a student a C who deserved a B. Uh, if I have to make that kind of you know decision on how to do an assessment and where it's going to uh, err on that side. And another part of that is um, I highly recommend over communicating. Uh, when you teach on campus, students see you at the front of the room three times a week. They know you're there because you're literally right there. If you do this synchronously, you kind of you might have some of that as well, but there's kind of this deafening silence that happens when you're in an online class and you're just waiting for an update from the professor and you haven't heard one, you haven't heard one, and you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and you don't know when one is coming. There are even some, you know, if you like uh, instead, if you browse the George Tech subreddit, they've already been memes about this. So I'm sitting here waiting for an update from my professor, like just waiting forever. Um, I recommend communicating something every day. Even if it's just endorse a student post on Piazza or post a cat gif or something that just says, I'm here, I'm paying attention. If you ask a question, it will be seen by, uh, by me. Someone is at the wheel, pretty much. This is not just, you know, oh, that's right, I was teaching a class this semester. That someone is there in charge paying attention because they'll never know if you're not doing something active. You could check the forum every single day and read every single thing that people write, but unless you actually then contribute, they never know you're there. I think there's a long way towards just giving students peace of mind to know someone is here, they're on my side, they understand this is stressful on me. And like y'all, like we've said several times, we're all in this together. I love the humanity of wrapping up those two kind of specific parting words that we're human and we're not going to always do the right thing in this brand new kind of fast environment. And our students need a lot of support as well. So um, remembering that we're in it together. 
Um, my other big takeaway from that is that cat gifts are always appropriate. So whenever you need to add a cat gift to break some tension, do it. People will love it or allow them to share their own cat gifts. Right? Well, thank you very much, David and Vincent, for joining us today. Uh, the Institute is actively compiling resources on the service.gatech.edu site. Click on the COVID-19 button to access this information. CETL is also working to build a variety of teaching and learning focused resources to help faculty make the rapid transition to remote teaching. We have resources for communicating and sharing content with students, adapting assignments, handling assessments, and many other important topics. CETL faculty are also standing by to provide one-on-one -on -one help to any instructors with questions about how to make remote teaching work for your specific classes. Visit ctl.gatech.edu slash keep hyphen teaching for more information. Please stay safe and well during this challenging period. We will work together to provide the best education for our students through flexibility, caring, and dedication to learning in any environment. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Teaching and Learning Buzz, the podcast of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Georgia Tech. Show notes and a transcript are available at ctl.gatech.edu slash tlbuzz. Check back regularly for new episodes, bonus clips, and more resources on our topics. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at ctlhelp at